So um, the reading is from 1 Peter chapter 2, um, starting at verse 19 and reading to verse 25. If you've got church Bibles, it's on page 1218. If you need a Bible, just put your hand up and someone will bring one to you. Okay, starting at verse 19 then. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Morning, everyone. Uh, if you've not met me before, uh, my name is Ben. Uh, I'm the pastor of this church. It's really nice to see you here this morning. Uh, let's pray uh, before we come to God's word together. Our Father in heaven, we do pray for your help this morning. Father, we know that your word is understood only by your spirit. And so, Father, please would you be at work by your spirit this morning, uh, opening our eyes and causing us to love you for all you've done for us in Christ and to respond rightly to what you have to say to us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Most of us would have heard examples. Examples of Christians who suffer for doing good, who suffer particularly in the workplace as they stand firm, as they hold fast to what God's word calls them to do, as they stick to what their conscience tells them, and they suffer for it. Whether it's the doctor who refuses to perform an abortion and is struck off the medical register, the carer who offers to pray for someone in need and gets told in no uncertain terms by their manager that if they do that again, they'll be sacked, The teacher who refuses to affirm certain things about gender and is called into a meeting with the head and a fuming parent. The construction worker who misses out on a promotion because promotions are decided amongst the bosses. They pick their mates and their mates are those who go to the strip club with them on a Friday night. Maybe it's the sales rep. The sales rep who is disciplined by their manager because their manager made a mistake messed up a client, and the sales rep refused to lie to the client about what went wrong. They told the truth. The company's reputation is in tatters, and they've been disciplined for doing good. The middle manager in a company who's fined for refusing to sign and abide by work's new diversity policy and to wear a rainbow lanyard. The HR professional who hears snippets about their bosses who are particularly abusive, it seems. They piece together the snippets. They blow the whistle. They stand up for the victims like Christ would have done. 
and they face years of being slandered and dragged through the courts as a result. Those are just seven examples we could go on. In each of those cases, Christians are seeking to do good. They are seeking within their conscience to honour the Lord in their place of work. And with it, in each of those examples, comes suffering. That is becoming more and more common in our society. I'm sure some of you this morning will have your own stories as you've stuck up for Christ and you face suffering in the workplace for it. It might not be as extreme as some of those, but that feeling of being ostracized and shunned by colleagues is one I'm sure some of us will know. Of constantly feeling judged by them. Or feeling that intense pressure to conform with what people around us are doing and thinking. The pressure to go against our conscience and against God's word. And here's the thing. That's not new. That's not new. That experience is one that Christians have faced ever since Christ ascended to heaven. Ever since Christ ascended to to heaven, Christians have faced this kind of experience. This morning, as part of our vision series, we're jumping into 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter was written about 30 years after Jesus died. It's a letter. And yet it is a letter that, although it's nearly 2,000 years old, it feels in lots of ways incredibly contemporary. In chapter 1, verse 1, Peter describes the Christians he's writing to as exiles. In chapter 1, verse 17, he describes them as foreigners. In chapter 2, verse 11, which is on the page that you'll have open in front of you, he brings those two together, foreigners and exiles. Why does Peter use those words to describe Christians? Well, because this world isn't our home, is it? In a sense, we are foreigners in this world. This world lives a certain way, and God calls his people to live a different way. And so we will feel like exiles. We will feel like this world isn't our home. We should expect opposition in this world. That's the reality. In the last few hundred years uh, in the West, predominantly the church has been seen as quite a respectable organisation. That's been a good thing, and there are reasons why that's been the case. But actually, that is not the norm. That is not the norm across the world. That is not the norm throughout history. The norm throughout history is that in lots of ways, yes, the church is commended for certain things, but in lots of ways, the church is opposed. They face persecution. Our brothers and sisters across the globe today know that more than we do. And Peter wrote to a bunch of believers, followers of Jesus, who feel isolated, who feel distant from those they live amongst, who face opposition for sticking to what Jesus has to say. That describes us some of the time, doesn't it? People who feel isolated, separated from those around them because we're trying to live a different way. Peter told this group of Christians what they needed to know to keep going. And he tells us what we need to keep going as well. See, what will help each of those people we referred to at the beginning, the doctor, the carer, the teacher, the construction worker, the sales rep, the middle manager, the HR professional, what will help you this morning? What will help me this morning? Simply put, it's this. 
knowing that Jesus suffered for our good and we're to follow in his steps. We're to know that Jesus suffered for our good and we're to follow in his steps. That's the two halves of what we're going to look at this morning. Here's the first then. Christ suffered for your good. Look down with me at chapter 2, verse 21. That's kind of our focus verse this morning. To this, this being suffering for doing good, you were called because Christ suffered for you. If we're going to endure suffering for following Jesus, if we're going to be able to endure that suffering for doing good, that will come our way. We need to know that Jesus got there first. Jesus got there first. So Peter needs to remind us that Jesus suffered. And that when Jesus suffered, he suffered sinlessly. Suffered despite the fact that he did no wrong whatsoever. Verse 22 is a pretty remarkable statement, isn't it? He committed no sin. And no deceit was found in his mouth. Peter followed Jesus around for three years. And in those three years, he never saw one shred of evidence that goes against this statement. In fact, at no point in any of Jesus' life did anything go against this statement. Peter spent three years in Jesus' company and saw no examples. I'm not sure you could spend three hours in anyone else's company and not see multiple examples that this isn't true for them. Three years. Not a shred of evidence. 33 years on this planet, not one single time did Jesus commit any sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. I want you to imagine for a moment that you're walking through a graveyard. And as you're walking through a graveyard, someone's tombstone catches your eye, and so you turn and you look at it. And on it, the tombstone, it has their name, it has the dates they were alive, and then it has, he committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. I wonder what your reaction would be to that tombstone. I imagine it would be something like my reaction, which is, grief is really hard, mourning is painful, but come on. I mean, really, like, I'm sure they did lots of good things, but no sin? No deceit? That's not possible. You just had rose-tinted lenses because you were looking at them through the tears of grief. And yet... For Jesus, if that was on his tombstone, so to speak, it would be true. Not a single lie, not a single sin. Jesus spent a large chunk of his life, and particularly, most intensively, the last three years, being constantly provoked and tempted. Not once did he give in to that temptation. Verse 23, we're told that they held insults at him particularly on his route to the cross. He was mocked and scoffed at, insulted and abused. And he did not retaliate. Imagine you were in his shoes, being mocked, scoffed at, abused and insulted. What would your response be? It might be that you're more likely to go quiet, that that kind of makes you shrivel inwards. But at least internally, I imagine your response would go something like this, quote, Nothing comes more naturally to the human heart than self-defense. It's true, isn't it? When we're insulted, when someone criticizes us, the most natural thing in our hearts is to defend ourselves. Whether we do that outwardly or whether we do it inwardly, we like to defend ourselves. When Jesus was insulted, he didn't defend himself. 
He didn't respond with malicious words. He didn't respond with great acts of power, calling down angels from heaven, though he could have done. He took it. Because he knew, verse 23, the one who judges justly. He knew that God the Father is the ultimate judge. So Jesus didn't need to win a fight there and then because he trusted that his God would judge people justly. He would be vindicated by his heavenly Father one day. But the thing is, with Jesus being provoked, it wasn't just insults. It was much worse than that. That was just the warm-up act for the horror of what was to come. I think there's a danger for us that as we think on the cross, we kind of have a slightly sanitized version of it. And I think that comes because basically, as we try and picture the cross in our minds, we end up either with medieval art or children's Bibles, because they're basically the two images that we've got. And in both of those cases, it's kind of made to look a bit nicer than it actually was. Jesus is always wearing a a loincloth to hide the bits that are too shameful to expose. His body is in relatively good shape. Yes, there's a few kind of cuts and bruises, but it doesn't look that bad. That is nothing like the reality of the cross. Jesus' body would have been gashed open from all of the flogging that he endured on the way to it. Probably so gashed open that you would have been able to see muscle and bone through the torn skin. Jesus didn't have a loincloth on. They never did. They were left naked for everyone to see, legs splayed open, So they were exposed to shame. Likely the weight of having to pull himself up to breathe meant that Jesus' shoulder joints would have been dislocated and looked completely distorted and disfigured. The cross has been described as one of the most brutal methods of execution ever invented. That is the suffering that Jesus undertook. And Peter knew that's what Jesus had faced. And he knew that Jesus had faced it, not because Jesus had done anything wrong, because he hadn't. He was sinless. Nor did he face it because he was an innocent sufferer who could do nothing about his plight. Jesus is the one who calmed the storm, raised the dead, healed the lame. He could have stopped it if he wanted to, but he didn't. He took it. He took it for our sake. He took it for our sake. He didn't deserve it. He wasn't unable to stop it. He took it because he was bearing our sin. It's a staggering thought, isn't it? Jesus endured all of that because of us. Because of you, me, and many others down the centuries who have gone astray. That's how Peter describes us. We are like sheep going astray. One of the many metaphors the Bible uses for our selfish way of living Sheep don't follow instructions. Sheep go where they want to go. And Jesus says, Peter says, by nature, our hearts are exactly the same. We do what we want to do. We run after the things that we love, and in doing so, turn our backs on the God who made us. That deserves punishment. Without someone stepping into the way, that day when the judge comes to judge justly, would leave us with a massive problem. Because on that day, we would have no defense. The just punishment 
would come our way. And yet, we are told that verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. That is, as he was there, he was facing God's anger, not for his sin, but for ours. Not for the ways that he rejected God, but the ways that we have. As a swap takes place. As he bears our sin so that we can, verse 24, die to sins and live to righteousness. So that the punishment that we were due to face is on him. And so we can be forgiven and live a new way in a new righteous life. It's the only solution to the problem of our sheep-like hearts. Hearts that go astray, running after other things. The only solution to that is someone else to pay the penalty for us. Because otherwise we'll face one ourselves one day. If you're here this morning and you've not put your trust for that day on Jesus, on him bearing our sins in his body on the cross, you need to before it's too late. Many of us this morning will have put our trust in him. In him who bore our sins in his body on the cross. So for a moment, let's just dwell on the glory of that reality. Verse 22 again, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. You or I would never deserve to have that written on our tombstones, would we? Except it's as if God could go along past our tombstones and write this verse on them. Because in Jesus, this is now true of us. Because Jesus has swapped his perfect righteousness and taken our sin, we receive that righteousness for ourselves. And so God looks at us, God looks at you if you've put your trust in Jesus this morning, and he looks at you and he says, you have committed no sin. No deceit is found in your mouth. It's a wonderful reality, isn't it? A glorious truth. Because Christ bore our sins, this is now true of us. He suffered brutally for our good. Over and over again through these verses, Peter quotes from a chapter in the Old Testament, a chapter called Isaiah 53. Peter wants us to have that chapter in our minds. That chapter is a chapter that sings a song of the innocent suffering for the guilty. It sings a song to us of the glory of what Jesus came to do. It shows us that Christ suffers the ultimate suffering for our ultimate good. We're going to do something a little bit different. Um, I'm going to read a large section of Isaiah 53, just hearing in God's words the glory of the cross. Then we're going to pause and sing before we come back to the second half of our sermon. And we're going to sing just to dwell on the reality of what God has done for us as Jesus suffered for our sake. No need to turn to Isaiah 53. Let me just read those words before we turn to sing. Jesus grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. Jesus had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Jesus was despised and rejected by mankind. He was a man of suffering and familiar with pain. He was like one from whom people hide their faces. He was 
despised. And we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Let's respond to those glorious words in song. Do grab a seat. The first thing that we've seen is that Christ suffered for your good. Christ suffered for your good. He bore the suffering of the cross for our transgressions, that we might be brought peace. Why does Peter tell us this? How is that going to help those Christians we thought about at the start? How is it going to help us as we face suffering for doing good? Well, the answer comes in verses 20 and 21. Let me read those. How is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you are called. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. We've seen that Jesus' death is much more than an example. It is the only way that we can be forgiven. It is how our sins have been paid for. His suffering is utterly unique. More than an example, but not less than an example. I want you to imagine for a moment a child learning to write. And a parent has diligently written out the alphabet for them and then put a piece of tracing paper and kind of paper clipped it over the top and tells the child to trace out the letters they can see from underneath. That's the image Peter wants us to have in his mind, or in our minds. Jesus' suffering is like the parent writing out the alphabet for us. It is unique, it is one-off, it is the first, it is the model, it is the example. And yet each of us, as we follow Jesus, are called to trace out his suffering. Not literally, we're not all called to go to crosses. We have to follow in his example. That is the example that's been set for us. It is an example of suffering. As Jesus did good, he suffered. And as we do good, we should expect to suffer too. Uh, Quick aside um, for us. God commends suffering for doing good. See, some people take verses like this as a justification for basically fighting about anything they want to fight about. They take it as a justification. As long as I'm standing for truth, I can basically be as obnoxious as I like. I'm going to face suffering, and that's just their problem, not mine. That is not what these verses say. 
This is not, these verses are not there to justify us gracelessly fighting every culture war we decide we want to fight and claim that every time anyone pushes back at us, that must be because we're suffering for doing good. Christians fall into that tendency. That is not what God is commending. Yes, he is commending for standing firm, and that will mean speaking truth when people don't want to hear it. But we suffer for doing good, which means we speak with grace and love and gentleness and respect as we stand for truth. And as we do that, we should still expect suffering. The message of the gospel, the good news about Jesus, is inherently offensive to people who don't follow it. And so however well we package it, however kindly we say it, there will be times where we face suffering, either for standing for those truths or for proclaiming those truths. When that suffering inevitably comes, we need to remember that Jesus got there first. Jesus faced that suffering first. Because on the path of suffering, Peter says, there are already footprints all the way along it. That path of suffering has been walked already by Jesus. And we are just called to follow, follow in his steps. As we've been seeing over this series, as we, see, as we seek to do what Christ did, as we seek to be like Christ, we can't do that in our own strength, can we? We can't love like Christ, that's what we were called to last week, from our own willpower. We can't be humble but like Christ just by trying really hard to think about ourselves as not very good. Now we need God's help with that. We need to remember that we draw from the vine. And that's how we bear this kind of fruit. We need to remember that it is the Spirit's work in us to transform us that we can be like this. We are called to suffer for doing good and we're going to need God's help as we do that because that is not easy. It's not an easy call that God's word gives us this morning. We need to gaze on all the, the glory of who God is, of all he has done for us in Christ, and particularly on the way Jesus suffered for us. And that is what will help us as we face suffering for doing good. We are called to follow in Christ's footsteps, to walk that path of suffering that Jesus walked. The Apostle Paul tells us that everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not some people, everyone. If we're a Christian, we should expect at times we will suffer for doing good. We face that more and more in our culture. When that suffering comes our way, that inevitable suffering, what should our response be? I think it's easy to think our response in that moment should be, I know I should suffer, so I need to stand firm, but I'm basically just going to grin and bear it. It's not going to be pleasant, but I'm going to push through it. You know, that's not what Peter says. If you flick over uh, just one page forward to page 1120, so flick over to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 16. Peter returns to this theme of suffering as a Christian. As he returns to that theme, he says this. However, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Praise God for suffering. Praise God that you have the privilege of suffering. That's what Peter says. That sounds absurd, right? Praise God for the fact that you have the privilege of suffering. Peter, come on. Maybe you just got a bit carried away. You know that's unrealistic. 
It's not. And do you know what? Peter isn't calling us to something that he didn't first do. Let me tell you about Acts chapter 5. See, in Acts chapter 5, Peter and the other apostles are proclaiming the good news of Jesus. As they proclaim the good news of Jesus, they are brought before the authorities. That happens a fair number of times. They're thrown into prison. They have to defend themselves. And eventually it's decided they'll be released, but first they'll be flogged. So they face a night in prison. They've got in trouble with the authorities and they've been flogged, which is not a pleasant experience. As they leave the place where they've been kept, this is what we're told. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing. Not rejoicing that they've been set free. That's what we'd expect it to say, right? Because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. They were rejoicing that they had been counted worthy of suffering, just like Jesus suffered. They knew that they followed a suffering servant. And so they knew that they would face suffering too. And when it came, they rejoiced because they knew that meant they were following in Jesus' footsteps. That that path of suffering that he walked, they were on the same path. So what about us? The doctor, the carer, the teacher, the construction worker, the sales rep, the middle manager, the HR professional, you, me. As we face suffering for doing good with friends, with family, with neighbours, with colleagues, as we seek to do good, here's what we need to remember. Expect suffering. It's been normal ever since the time of Jesus. Look to how Christ suffered for you. That ultimate brutal suffering to give you the ultimate good, salvation in him. Seek to follow in Jesus' footsteps. Endure suffering, doing good with the Spirit's help, and rejoicing that you are counted worthy of suffering because you know that you're walking the same path that he did. And know that as you do that, you will receive the Father's commendation. This is commendable before God. Let me lead us in prayer. Christ suffered for you. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for just the glory of those four simple words. Christ, that is your anointed King, Jesus, who is God, who came down from heaven. That one suffered brutally, agonizingly, excruciatingly for us. It's a wonderful, glorious truth, and we praise you for it. We praise you that he suffered for us. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Our Father, please help us to follow in Jesus' steps, to trace out that example, to bear suffering for doing good. Please give us all we need to do good and to endure whatever suffering comes our way and to rejoice as that suffering comes because we're counted worthy to walk the same path that our Saviour walked. Amen.